Open up your Bibles today to the book of Daniel once again, Daniel chapter 3. Last week we saw that Daniel interpreted the king's dream, and it was indeed a crazy dream. Let's ask God's help as we consider the events of chapter 3. Lord, help us today as we open up your holy word to make much of it, to expound its truths accurately, and Lord, that you would use us for your glory in this room, as you would sanctify your people, and that you would draw sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. Encourage us, shape us, form us, God, according to this text. In your precious name we pray, amen. The king's dream was of a giant statue made out of gold and silver and bronze, iron and clay, and it was... Gold at the top and clay mixed with iron all the way to the feet from top to bottom. We said that the statue represented future kingdoms to come. The top being representative of the head of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon at the time. And this statue we saw, it disintegrated and blew away like chaff in the wind. And as a stone from heaven came and smashed it, Nebuchadnezzar again at the top of the statue, would not last. This is the message that Daniel is giving him. And it smashes all future kingdoms as well. All four kingdoms that would come, the Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman empires as well, would also not last. When Daniel is done giving his interpretation of the dream and the Lord of the messianic kingdom that is to come, that smashes all other kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar thanks Daniel for this interpretation and gives Daniel and elevates him to a place of high authority. And in also of his friends that came with him. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, some have said that there's a time lapse here of about 9 to 10 years in between the events of chapters 2 and 3. So keep that in mind. In verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, first of all, how arrogant is this man? A few crazy things about him setting up this statue. First of all, it was most likely the same statue that he saw in his dream. And what does he do? He builds it. He builds it. And so the context of Chapter 2 being the same statue and chapter 3 following makes us think it's the same one. But what's different about the statue that he makes here in chapter 3 is a little bit different than his dream. The dream was made out of different metals, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. But then this statue that he erects is all made out of gold. All out of gold. Remember that Daniel said that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon was the first kingdom of this statue. He was the head made out of gold. So what does he do? He makes the whole thing out of gold. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar let this whole thing go to his head. Pun intended. <laughs> He's doing this most likely in defiance of Daniel's dream and the interpretation that God gave to Daniel. He is flexing his muscle. He's showing his might. Essentially what he's saying is that no kingdom will overtake me. I am the king from top to bottom. No kingdom will replace me. And I will last and stand forever. A man full of great pride. 
Daniel tells us here that it's one, cu- one cubit, that it's, uh, excuse me, that it's 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. The breadth of it is six cubits. Well, one cubit is 18 inches. 60 cubits then would be about 90 feet high is this statue. And six cubits wide is about nine feet wide. So 90 feet high, it's pretty big. Think of a nine-story building. And nine feet wide at its base. And the statue is probably of himself, being that he's the head in the dream. And he dedicated it to the gods of Babylon, that he is the ruler of Babylon, and it's dedicated to the gods of Babylon, even representing the gods of Babylon, as we'll see later in the story. It would have been quite the impressive feat to make. Now, we're not told that it was made of solid gold. More than likely, as we've seen with other idols in the Old Testament, it was probably overlaid with gold, like um, gold on the outside and uh, metal on the inside. But even where he puts this statue is of great significance. Uh, We are told in verse 1 that it was set up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The plain of Dura, many Bible scholars conclude that this is the same plain where the Tower of Babel was built. We're told in Genesis 11 that the Tower of Babel was built in the, in the plains of Shinar. Shinar is the same region where Babylon is. And so it's very likely in the same place where the Tower of Babel stood in Genesis 11, he now builds this statue representing his power and his might and his glory for all the nations to see. Remember, one of the reasons that the Tower of Babel was built was so that the people could make a name for themselves. Well, this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He's trying to make a name for himself and elevate himself above all other uh, nations and gods. That he is the king in the kingdom that will last forever. It is no doubt that this is what he is doing here. Also, I want you to see something else very significant in verse 1. We see the, f- the phrase, he set it up. He set up. This phrase is repeated nine different times in the first 18 verses. That is significant. We are told by the author of this book that he wants us to understand that Nebuchadnezzar set it up. He says it in verse 1 and verse 2, twice in verse 3, 5, 7, 9, 12, 14, and 18. It's repeated. There is no doubt who set up this statue. This is the work of an evil, prideful man who, who thinks that he's about to establish his kingdom forever. But remember what Daniel prayed in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar is not anyone who can set up his kingdom or any kingdom after him. Nebuchadnezzar is subject to a sovereign God who is, who is the one who sets up kingdoms. And I think that the writer of this book does that on purpose to see the difference and the similarities in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, let's look at that. Daniel 2, 20. Remember, this is Daniel's prayers. He's seeking uh, the answer to the dream. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Here Daniel prays. He removes kings, speaking of God. And he what? Sets up kings. The same word that Nebuchadnezzar uses nine different times in the first 18 verses sets up. There's a parallel here that they're trying to make. 
Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's God. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who thinks that he rules the world. And from a human perspective, he does. His kingdom was vast and he's wealthy and rich. But make no mistake that he is being set up here, pun intended, for a massive failure. And the Lord God will show himself glorious over mighty Nebuchadnezzar. It is God who sets up kings and removes kings. It's not up to kings to set themselves up or remove it. Everything happens by the decree of God and everything happens by the providence of God. If you're in my 1689 group, those words have hopefully new meaning for you. The God who decrees all things provides all things for what he has decreed. This is not a coincidence. This is a battle that Nebuchadnezzar will ultimately lose, and it all is built on the pride that he is exhibiting from his sinful heart. This is really not uncommon, is it? Leaders and dictators and evil rulers of the world, they do this repeatedly throughout history. Dictators like Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar, like to instill an image of themselves to keep themselves before the people, whether it be statues or putting their faces on currency or posters all over the country. Adolf Hitler did this. Saddam Hussein erected a statue. Joseph Stalin, Fidel Castro in Cuba, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, they all do it. All these evil rulers erect the praise of their name before their people to keep themselves there, but always their destruction is at hand. Castro is no more. Chavez is no more. Stalin, Saddam Hussein, Hitler, they're all no more, even though they all try to rule as the king of the world. They all do it. They all try to elevate themselves. But God's ways always have the last word. And Nebuchadnezzar will be no different. So verse 1 is loaded. Look at verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, and the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There's three different times in those two verses. So far, four times in four verses. Do you think that's significant? It most certainly is. King Nebuchadnezzar is gathering all the high-ranking officials from all across the empire to come for his statue dedication. Everywhere, these governors, probably ruling different parts of Babylon, they came to this ceremony to worship the statue and to hear what the king had to say. Look at verse 4. Here's the decree that goes out from King Nebuchadnezzar's court. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, everyone's gathered together, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, a new law is established. 
when anyone in the country heard any kind of music, any kind of instrument, you were to fall down and worship this statue. And the consequences of disobedience is that you would be cast alive into a fiery furnace. Notice the contrast that we could see here as we have both the Old and the New Testament of who our God is compared to this wicked king. King Nebuchadnezzar forces people to worship him. He commands people to worship him and then forces them to worship him against their will. Our God, and notice all peoples, nations, and languages. I love in Revelation chapter 7, as the Apostle John stands and has a vision of the throne room of God, and he says, Behold, there was a multitude of people from all tribes and tongues and nations, and they're singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. They're not being forced to worship. They are praising the worthiness of the one who is only allowed to be worshipped. Again, in contrast to King Nebuchadnezzar, who makes people by command, by force, worship him, or else. If you don't worship, a fiery furnace awaits you. It's all about worship, isn't it? It's all about worship. It's all about robbing the true God of his glory. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He sees himself as the head of the statue, the gold, the most, the most wealthiest of all the empires and kingdoms that will come after him. Daniel even says in the dream that the nation that comes after him is inferior to King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the one thing that is constant about bad government, isn't it? Kings, dictators, rulers, when they usurp their God-given authority and role, they always try to get people to worship them. You know the one thing, this is constant in government. No matter what label, affiliation, or party, or nation it is, bad government always wants you to worship them as God. It do. Look, out, look throughout all the empires and the regimes and political people that have risen. They want to be worshipped. They want to promise to provide for you, protect you, as long as you give them some kind of worship. And in our country, that's called votes. Worship us. We'll provide for you. We're God. We'll take care of you. Just trust in us. Do what we say, but then vote for us. That's the worship that happens all the time. Big government is bad, in case you didn't know. All right, moving on. That was free. That was not a part of my notes. <laughs> Don't be fooled. Everybody worships. There's not a single person on planet earth that does not worship. The question is not whether you will worship. The question is always who you will worship. This has been the fight and the battle since the garden. As the serpent enters and deceives Adam and Eve. Who will you worship? Who will you trust? Will you trust what God has said? Or will you trust me? Everybody worships. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar is commanding of all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. Look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. 
And whoever does not fall down in worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Remember that these are the some of the same people, these Chaldeans, that were just saved from the king's wrath by Daniel interpreting the king's dream. Remember, the king had ordered all their deaths, but Daniel saved them. He saved them. And now they are coming to maliciously attack Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three of Daniel's friends. They aren't friendly towards these Jewish exiles, and we don't know why, but perhaps they're a little jealous that these Jews who were from Judah, who were supposed to be their captives, are now risen to places of power and authority. Perhaps it's some level of jealousy um, or some uh, pride that is in them. And whatever the case is, they try to get them in trouble with the king. They notice that everybody is bowing down. Everybody is paying homage to the statue that the king has set up, except these three. Now, Daniel is nowhere mentioned. Maybe he's away. He's on a trip. He's somewhere else. Don't assume that Daniel worshiped. He, I don't think he's around. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He says this, they pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship your image that you have set up. Well, what's the king going to do? Will the king say and do what he has said? Well, this is what they're hoping. Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? I mean, this king sees this as an unbelievable thing. It's almost like he asks, is it really true that you're not doing this? Like, he can't imagine that anyone wouldn't worship his statue. Now, if you are ready, I'll give you another chance. If you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, by the way, that is mentioned over and over and over again. For some reason, the Holy Spirit wants us to read it again and again and again. And so we read it again and again and again. It's all God's Word. Amen? Because we get the point of all the instruments that are there. To fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh, here comes the showdown. Here comes the showdown. He, he gives them another chance because he can't, he can't even believe that there's three dummies in the country that are not doing what he wants them to do. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what, guys. Get ready. We're going to play musical chairs. I'm going to start the music, right? I'll start the music. When you hear the music, then you go, all right? Everyone bow down. He's trying to strike fear into them and then even challenges them. You don't worship my gods? I'd love to see what God is going to save you from me. I'd love to see what kind of God will worship, save you from me. Have you ever heard the expression, eat your own words? Yeah, that's what's about to happen. He's setting himself up for failure, striking fear in them. 
sitting high and mighty on his pride, elevating himself above God, above all kings. I'd like to see the God who saves you from my wrath. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They basically respond back and say to him, I don't think we even really need to have this conversation. Don't even bother starting the music because we are not listening to you. We don't need to answer you. And the reason we don't need to answer to you is because we answer to someone mightier than you. We answer to someone greater than you, O King Nebuchadnezzar. If our God will save us, great. And you will see who the true God is. And if he decides not to save us and we die, then we'd rather die than worship and obey you. Mic drop, right? Boom. They're not going to compromise their beliefs. They're not going to compromise and bow down to big government and tell and submit to big government and what big government wants them to do. They're going to obey their God. And notice, they don't presume upon God's salvation here. They don't say, our God will save us because they know that God is not obligated to do anything. God God is not owing them anything. They owe God all the worship. God doesn't owe them anything. If God saves them, then so be it. And if God doesn't, then so be it. They'd rather die than obey the king over their God. They weren't going to let fear be the deciding factor, which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do. Be afraid and worship me. They'd rather die. They'd rather die than cave to the fear. They'd rather die than disobey God. Just the opposite happened in the garden, didn't it? Adam and Eve are there. Well, Eve specifically listening to the serpent. She listens, questions God, gives it to Adam. Adam doesn't have a backbone. He caves. He also eats. And they both disobey God. Brothers and sisters, there's much we can learn here. And there's like many examples in the scriptures of standing up for what you believe. Obeying God rather than the world. Because don't forget Babylon throughout the scriptures, even in the book of Revelation, is equivalent, symbolic of the world's ways. The world's systems and all the ways that oppose God. And obviously, I don't think I need to tell you that we live in a godless age. We live in a godless society. We live in, in, a, in, a, in a world that wants to worship man rather than God. We live in a world that wants to cater to the opinions of men and women who think they're 27 other genders rather than the one they were born with. And we catered to this all in the name of political correctness and and ideologies that are from the pits of hell. 
And people bow down and worship just so they can fit into the, into the mold and not be labeled an outcast or not be labeled a, uh, a deviant and, or labeled old-fashioned. And they refuse to obey the Lord and go with the political system. These guys are not going to do that. These guys are not going to do that. And who knows, we may be forced to or coerced into sinning against our God. Maybe it's in the name of convenience. Well, we know what's right to do, but this is the easier thing to do. Or perhaps it's disobedience for a job promotion or maybe something that will save you some money or time or energy. We must always do what's right, no matter what the consequences stand in our way, say, As they say, we don't have to answer to you, O king. We serve another king. I think of examples of faithful men who have gone before us. I think of Martin Luther, who after writing his 95 theses, seeking debate against the Roman Catholic Church, nailed 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And since then, in in the years following, wrote other theological books and works that spoke against the false doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, the emperor, Charles V, grew very upset at Martin Luther, this Augustinian monk, and brought him to trial at the Diet of Worms. And he said that he must recant of everything he has ever written and ever believed. And if he did recant, then he would be left, that he would live and they would keep him in the church. If not, they were going to excommunicate him. Well, at the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther makes the following statement to Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. He says, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. And from that bold stand sparked the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was given uh, so much time to escape. He had a protection, actually. Why didn't they kill him on the spot? Well, they couldn't. He then, in the remaining years, was an outlaw, meaning that anyone in, the, in Germany or anyone in the Holy Roman Empire could kill him without threat of, or punishment. After 21 days of protection, he escaped to Wartburg, Germany, assumed an alias, and continued to write and translate the Bible into German and continued to spark reformation that we're still feeling today. Why? Because he refused to bow down to the worldly authorities. He stood for what he knew was true and right. Let's also think of another man. Maybe some of you know him. Maybe some of you don't. His name is Paul Schneider. The day was April 20th, 1938. It happened to be Adolf Hitler's 49th birthday. Paul Schneider was a pastor and a prisoner in Nazi Germany. And the prisoners were ordered to remove the berets and venerate the Nazi swastika flag. At once, all whipped off their headgear. But guards observed one man who would not bow to the swastika, a pastor by the name of Paul Schneider. They beat him 25 lashes with an oxhide whip. That was only the first oxhide treatment because he refused to worship the idol of Nazi Germany. He was then later executed by Hitler. 
Again, it cost him his life, but he kept his principle of not bowing down to worldly authorities. I mean, brothers and sisters, I don't know. I mean, we could be facing very hard days in the years and decades to come. I, as a pastor, could be forced by our country to do a homosexual wedding. And I think you already know what my answer will be. We will not do that. We will not cave. We will obey God no matter what. And we will stand for what is true. I think of the apostles in the book of Acts chapter 5, verse 27 and 32. They were preaching Christ and they were ordered by the, uh, by the authorities to stop preaching Christ. And this is what is said in Acts chapter 5, verse 27. When they had brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Basically, they're saying, we can't shut up. You tell us to shut up, and we won't. We will obey God rather than men. What godly examples were Luther, Schneider, of course, the apostles. And now we have the examples of these three men who where everyone else is caving to the pressure, everyone else is bowing down and doing what they are told to do, they refuse to do it. They'd rather die. Let us have such strong convictions as that. To have the opinions of God, the favor of God, rather than the favor of the world. Well, as you can imagine, this did not sit well with King Nebuchadnezzar. This defiance that these three men showed before him. So look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. The king has a short fuse, doesn't he? He gets angry. His bodily language is changes his facial expressions. You can see the veins popping in his forehead. He is just so angry. Everything is different now. And he orders seven times hotter that that furnace, which was probably made to, to made pottery and bricks there in Babylon. Seven times hotter. Well, how do you know if something is seven times hotter if you don't have a thermostat or a thermometer? Like, how could they say, okay, this is five times hotter. This is seven. What does that mean? Well, Again, this is hyperbole. In the Bible, there's a lot of meaning behind numbers and symbols. The number seven is a picture of fullness, perfection, completeness. Essentially, what King Nebuchadnezzar is saying, burn that fiery furnace as hot as you could possibly make it. It's a hyperbole to say, get it as hot and as violent as you can do it. Look at verse 20. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So he ties them up. He binds them with garments. They are marched to the furnace. And they get thrown in. Matter of fact, it says they fell in. They fell bound into the furnace. More than likely, this furnace was a tall furnace with some kind of steps or stairs up to the top of it. And they were thrown on top of it and fell all the way down. But on the way, this furnace was so hot that even the men who were bringing them, as this fire raged uncontrollably, were consumed and died because of the excessive heat and flames. But not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into the fire and fell all the way down to the bottom. Then Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, was astonished. And he rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, Wait a minute, did we not cast three men into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So the king gets up. He could see he's got his popcorn ready. You know, he's got his Diet Coke. He's he's like, all right, let's get the party started. He puts on his glasses, and he's like, guys, how many? Didn't we throw three of them in there? Yeah. Well, why is there four? And the fourth one doesn't look like the rest. The fourth one looks like, he says, quote, a son of the gods. A son of the gods. Somebody divine. What is happening here? But that God has saved them from Nebuchadnezzar and this furnace. So the question must be asked, who is this fourth person who looks so divine? Well, the text isn't very clear. And we aren't told specific answers. But I don't believe it would be a stretch to say that that fourth person in the fiery furnace was a Christophany. That's probably a brand new word for some of you. What is a Christophany? A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pre-incarnate, meaning he was born in, but he's the eternal God. He's He's eternal. He's always existed. He's never come into existence, never created. But born in human flesh in Bethlehem, we all know Christmas story. Before Bethlehem, before he was incarnated, pre-incarnate, he had an appearance there in the fiery furnace. A Christophany is usually spotted in the Old Testament by these words, the angel of the Lord. The, not an angel, but the angel of the Lord. That's how it's repeated elsewhere. The angel of the Lord is not just any angel. By the way, the word angel just means messenger, the messenger of the Lord. Remember that the Lord Jesus is the Logos. He's the word. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus. And this is not the only Christophany in the Old Testament. There's many. For example, it was the Lord Jesus who appeared to Hagar in Genesis 16 in her most desperate hour. It was the Lord Jesus who appeared to Gideon under the oak in Judges chapter 6. It was the Lord Jesus who appeared to Abram in chapter 18. It was the Lord Jesus who appeared to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush. It was the Lord Jesus who wrestled with Jacob all night in Genesis 32. 
It was the Lord Jesus who appeared to Joshua before the battle of Jericho in Joshua 5. It was the Lord Jesus who stopped Abraham's knife from sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22. Most of these appearances, it says, the angel of the Lord. Well, I don't think it would be a stretch at all to say that this is who this is. A pre-incarnate appearance of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus This is why I think it's right to conclude that when Nebuchadnezzar saw a son of the gods, he was almost right. It was the son of God, not a son of the gods, the Lord Jesus. And actually, this is what Isaiah prophesies would happen. In Isaiah chapter 43, remember Isaiah prophesied before the exile, before Daniel ever got to Babylon And Isaiah is warning them and giving them promises about the Messiah and what would happen. And Isaiah 43, 2, God tells them, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Of course, the waters represent their first salvation from Egypt crossing the Red Sea. And the fires often, the prophets relay that to Babylon. Literally, what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they go through the fire and are not burned. And what does the Lord say? I will be with you. It's not a stretch to say that it's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God, representation of the divine trinity, to our visible eyes. I will be with you. Don't forget that by God's providence, he's providing for Nebuchadnezzar exactly what he's challenged these guys with. Let's see the God who will save you from my wrath. Well, he literally does see the God who will save them from his wrath. Now he knows. Look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. And he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Oh, his language changes, doesn't it? Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Very reminiscent of the burning bush that burned without being consumed. Exactly what Isaiah says. You will walk through the fire. And they were walking in the fire. And you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Amazing. This is a miracle, of course. He refers to the Lord as the most high God. He's making progress, O Nebuchadnezzar. But he's not there yet. Notice how extent God's protection was. All the officials from all across the empire gathered and saw the same thing. Not a hair on their heads was burned. You couldn't even smell smoke on them. No fireproof was evident on their bodies. One of the things I love to do is sit around a fire. I, I, 
people, I like it, people don't. Lori hates it. I sit around the fire, and then you go inside, and you just smell like the fire. You smell like the campfire and the wood burning, and, and Lori's like, <clears throat> go take a shower. But I love it. These guys don't even smell like anything. Truly a miracle indeed. Look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, again the messenger of the Lord, and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Here Nebuchadnezzar gives them credit. You guys are to be commended for standing up for what you believe in. You guys didn't cave to me. You even were willing to give up your bodies and die than serve my God. And that sends a loud message to the king. These guys are serious. And he has just witnessed the miraculous power and the glory of their God, the most high God. So therefore, what does he do? Therefore, I make a decree, King Nebuchadnezzar says. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Amazing. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What an amazing passage. God saves his servants And he makes himself known to this wicked king. So much so that King Nebuchadnezzar makes a law saying that it is against the law to say anything bad against their God. Because who alone can do what he did? God is glorified in their salvation and God is glorified in judgment and humbling wicked kings. God allows King Nebuchadnezzar to see this so that King Nebuchadnezzar's heart can understand that there is no other God and he is not one of them. Nebuchadnezzar is not the king of the world. His kingdoms do not last. No matter how big he builds that statue and how beautiful and glorious he makes it, all statues, all kings crumble at the command of the sovereign God of the universe. Any attempt of any person or creature to elevate themselves to God or make themselves God will utterly fail. So what do we do with this story? Well, there's a lot we can do with it. And some preach this, and perhaps you've heard it this way, and you just leave it alone, like, just be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And be brave and stand up. And there's a lot of principles that you can gather from that, as we've already said. We, there's a, that's a good example. Paul told us that the Old Testament was written for our example, right? So we should follow their steps. We know that. There's some things that we should obey in there. But again, if that's all you see in the story, then I think you've missed the big picture. You see, equating ourselves to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is making ourselves to be the hero of the story. And friends, we are never the hero of the story. We are not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know who we are in this story? We are King Nebuchadnezzar. We are the ones who build up our own idols. We are the ones, through our pride, try to elevate our sin and glory in ourselves above all others. Me, Dan? Yeah, you. You know who you are. You. You and I are like King Nebuchadnezzar. 
It's the Lord Jesus who stands up like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego against our sin, against the evil one, against the rulers of this world, and is willing to go and be sacrificed in defiance of the evil king. It's the Lord Jesus who comes and dies for his enemies. It's the Lord Jesus who comes and makes things whole. It's the Lord Jesus who is the hero of this story. Not only does he appear to us as an example like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who obeyed God perfectly and who went and sacrificed themselves and no matter the cost, he is also the one who's in the fire who saves his friends. He's also the one who walks in our midst. And friends, we are helpless without him. We cannot do anything without the Lord Jesus. We can't stand before God. We cannot stand on our own. We will all fail because at the heart of every sin, is pride. At the, you, you name the sin. You get down to the root cause. It's always the pride of our hearts. That's who we are. And like Nebuchadnezzar, unless we bow the knee to the true king, our kingdoms crumble and fall. Maybe some of you already have had kingdoms crumble and fall. Maybe you've already been thrown down from high places of life and authority and have been humbled by God. May that humbleness draw you to your knees in worship. May you see that God is a God to be praised above all gods and peoples. And most importantly, you and me. We are our own worst enemies, my friend. We are our own biggest idols. We must tear down these idols in the authority of the one who is most glorious and worthy to reign over our hearts and the world. Let us see Christ as the one who topples our pride, who throws down our sin, who takes our sin upon him in obedience to the one who is worthy to be praised and obeyed and obeys for us even though we are as wicked as Nebuchadnezzar. And may that lead you to repentance. As it will, spoiler alert, lead to Nebuchadnezzar's repentance. May you see God as the true glorious God that he is. Let's pray. Oh God, it's hard to see ourselves as Nebuchadnezzar. We want to see ourselves as the hero. But God, that's just a moralistic conclusion to this story. Yes, there's principles we should obey and model and example. But God, let us not leave this story with us thinking that we're the hero and we could just do it. But God, that we have one who did. We have one who has obeyed for us. Who has obeyed the true king at the greatest cost of his own life, absorbing the wrath that was due for sinners like all of us in this room. Father, I pray that those gathered in this room, if they do not know the Lord Jesus in a saving way, if they've never been born again, that they would hear the message of the gospel one more time, that they are, that they are the King Nebuchadnezzar, full of pride and wicked, who deserves the wrath and judgment of God. Their kingdoms will topple unless they bow the knee to King Jesus and worship him. Glory in his kingdom. Serve him. Trust in him. Oh, Father, help us.
make much of you as we apply this text to our hearts. And God, may you tear down idols that are bigger than 90 feet high, nine feet wide in our hearts. There's so much pride, God, so much pride that leads to destruction, so much pride that leads to wickedness and evil, so much pride that keeps us from repentance, so much pride that keeps us from being honest in relationships, so much pride that keeps us away from you. Humble us, God, to know the truth, no matter the cost, that you are worthy to be obeyed than any earthly power or principality. And Father, if we ever were to find ourselves in a situation similar to these men, that you would find us faithful, that you embolden our witness and give us a backbone to stand for what's right in your name for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.